John chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, you can go there. If you're on a device, you can still go to John chapter 5. You can do the ESV version. You'll stay tracking with us. We're talking a little bit about this thing called legalism this morning. It's probably a word that maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't heard. This is what the word means when we say legalism. It's excessive adherence to a law or a formula Uh, It is dependence on a moral law rather than on faith. So kind of two separate definitions there. One is excessive adherence to a particular law or formula. And then for the sake of what we're going to be diving into this morning, a, a, a deeper definition that I think is more helpful is that it's dependence on moral law rather than on faith. And we're going to see some of the ways that this gets unpacked. I know that um, in different generations, there are different things that the church deals with in terms of its own sort of like uh, particulars when it comes to legalisms, right? I remember growing up, uh, my era, which was unfortunately the 1980s, when uh, everything was beautiful and the haircuts were sweet. Um, But I remember as I was growing up uh, in evangelical churches at that particular time, um, a lot of the stuff that got talked about at that time was, was, you know, what kind of music are you listening to? And uh, what kind of movies are you watching? And, you know, what about your clothing? And, and things like alcohol consumption and things of that nature. And there was a, there was a lot of emphasis put on, um, you know, what was allowed to watch as somebody who claimed faith in Christ, what was, what was allowed to wear, what was allowed to be consumed. There was a lot of emphasis on that in the sense that if you didn't conform to a particular um, kind of rule or law that that particular church had, they, they might look at you and they might even question your faith. Right. So instead of us having some freedom when it comes to things like music, for example, or clothing or things of that nature, um, I would be in particular churches where they, they would kind of lay down the law and what was acceptable and that you had to sort of, you know, you, you had to sort of amount to or add up to whatever it was the law of the land that laid out that they had laid out in their church be so that you could be somebody that was considered holy or close to Jesus or growing in their faith. Um, and then we, you know, we get to today and some of those things are the same things. Uh, some of those things are a little bit, a little bit different. You know, uh, probably more of the conversation now is not so much on, on, on some of those things. Um, it might be more on uh, things like how you school your children. You know, um, that, that would be a, a hot topic for the, for the church and where they land in some of those different areas. Or, or hey, uh, the way that you're eating, are you somebody who eats clean, you know? Are you somebody who's taking care of your body in these particular kinds of ways? Those are a little more some of the emphasis that, that we see today in the church. Um, and again, these are all matters of conviction and, and stewardship, They're all matters of conviction and and stewardship. What we're going to see today as we dive into John 5 is that Jesus was healing a paralyzed man, but he was doing it on the Sabbath. And the Jews had become very legalistic in how they attempted to keep God's law. And one of the ways they attempted to keep God's law was to adhere to everything that God had put out on what you were allowed to do on the Sabbath day. Now, some of those things were good and true things because God was the one that had instituted them. What had happened is all of these thousands of years later after God had given the Israelites those law, a lot of the teachers and the leaders of that time, they took those laws and they added to them. They doubled down on them. They made them stricter than they needed to be. 
So instead of taking one of God's laws and saying God has given us this law for a reason, God gives us all of his laws for a reason. It's for his glory. It's for our flourishing. It's for the good of the church, right? Um, instead of taking that and receiving it as a gift, when we add to it or we subtract from it, what's happening is we're, we're taking something and we're making a law out of something um, that God has given us freedom in. God has given us laws that he commands us to obey. And when we obey them with the right heart, it leads to kind of how Scott just pointed out in a, as we prayed this morning to a life of, of flourishing and christ Likeness. Why? Well, because lawlessness, not obeying God's law, that's a sin, right? So as Christians, we, we, we do keep the law. There are laws that God gives us that we keep. Lawlessness is described as sin in the Bible. Now, this is what legalism is, all right? Taking all that into consideration. Legalism is when a person keeps God's laws in order to bring glory to himself or herself, to bring glory to him or herself other than God. So rather than flourishing, rather than the, the Christ-likeness that comes when we obey God's law, legalism leads to things like worldliness and judgment and division in the church. Um, in fact, legalism, for all of its attempting to do in keeping the law, is another version of lawlessness, ironically enough. Um, so again, let me just say, state this so that we're really, really clear where we're going to here today. We are called to obey God's laws for the sake of God's glory. And the only way to do that, and this is what we're going to see here in, in John 5, is with hearts that are being transformed by the mercy of Jesus Christ. All right? Let's dive in. John chapter 5. I'm going to read the first 18 verses, and that's what we're going to unpack today for our time. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. We get to verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Well, who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I 
and working. And then we get to verse 18 and it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So I want to deal with a, with a strange thing here in the first few verses of, of, the, of our, of our uh, chapter here before we move on. If you'll notice in your Bible, if you have the ESV, uh, you'll see verses 1, 2, 3, and then 5. And so no, you didn't get the one Bible that they made the printing error on. It says it in my Bible. It says it in the ESV version. The reason why this verse is omitted, and this is what the verse is in the King James Version, it's this, verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, talking about why the man wanted to be carried down into the pool, and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now, the ESV and a lot of different good translations, they omit this verse simply because when you go to the earliest manuscripts, it's not found there. And so that's why they skip over the verse here from 3 to five, um, but it doesn't take away from the larger point of what's uh, going on here, which is basically this. There was a, 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 this was a pool of water at this time at, by this place called the Sheep Gate that people believed had these legendary healing powers. And yet this, this man was never able to, in a sense, test the legend. Uh, so that is what it remained for him, was just a story, just a legend. Jesus had something else in mind uh, for this brother. Not only healing this paralyzed man, but showing us a greater paralysis of soul that we all need to find healing for. And that's what we're going to unpack today. It's a paralysis that creates conflict until we embrace the mercy of Jesus, which then provides the clarity we need to love and obey him the way he has called us to. And, and that's what our first point is, is that the mercy of Jesus causes conflict. Conflict with who? Conflict with the people that are more worried about the rules of Jesus than the mercy of Jesus. At the same time, and I'm going to qualify this a lot because I don't want you to think that oh, Ronnie doesn't care about the rules. Ronnie doesn't care about obeying Jesus. I think I set that up in the beginning to make sure that we were clear on that. But... The mercy of Jesus causes conflict. It causes conflict in the church. It caused conflict back then. It caused conflict back then with the Jewish law keepers. And, it, and it's because there was this thing in the air, in place, in this society called legalism that we unpacked at the beginning. The first conflict is this when we're talking about legalism, okay? Legalism eliminates empathy. When we talk about conflict and we talk about the mercy of Jesus causing conflict and we talk about that conflict being the legalism that exists in our hearts, the first thing that we see about legalism here is that it eliminates empathy. It was more important for Jesus to keep the law than to give a man his legs back. That was more important. Proverbs 21.10 says this, it says, the soul of the wicked desires evil and his neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. A lack of empathy always leads to a lack of mercy. 
A lack of empathy also leads to hypocrisy, right? Because we need empathy when we have a complex need. This brother had both a simple and a complex need. It was a simple need. He would have liked to have use of his legs back, but the time that Jesus had decided to heal him and provide to him what he needed happened to be on the Sabbath. That's where the complexity came in. That's where the conflict came in. Sometimes we don't know what to do. Sometimes we have conflicting decisions that need to be made due to extenuating circumstances. What we need in those moments is what this man needed. He needed somebody who can be empathetic to his cause and give him help that deals with the issues and the complexities at hand. A legalist says this, I don't care what you're going through. I don't care how you feel. I don't care about the story that brought you here. You should just do X, Y, and Z. The legalist creates a black and white world where they essentially are ruling from a, a throne of self-righteousness. What these verses show us is that the mercy of Jesus provides relief when other people have nothing but rigidity for us. Love confronts our complexities by showing empathy. We learn in the book of James, chapter 2, James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, so we are not saying, you know what, there's times just to back away and don't obey the law of God. But we're going to see that this was not the law of God. And mercy and grace is always the thing infused with every point of the law of God, if that makes sense. So the first conflict we see here, because this is what the mercy of Jesus causes, is that legalism eliminates empathy. The second one is this. Legalism prevents praise and rejoicing. These men couldn't praise God or rejoice with this man being healed. And by the way, if your doctrine, if what you believe about God, what you hold to, prohibits you from rejoicing with another human being who has received the mercy of God, that's called bad doctrine, right? Even if it's true on a technical level, because it's not only what you believe, it's how you live out your beliefs. It's how you communicate your beliefs. It's what your belief tell, tells others about Jesus at the end of the day that lets you know if your beliefs are in line with Jesus. So here's an example. If I scream, Jesus loves you at the top of my lungs with all the veins popping out of my forehead and steam coming out of my ears, doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love you. It just means I'm really bad at telling you that he loves you. It means I lack discernment how to communicate his love. And you know what? It'll likely be something you don't want to have any part of either. Does it mean Jesus doesn't love you? No. It means that as a disciple of Jesus, I'm lacking a lot of discernment in how I communicate that, that love to you because there's not a lot of praise and rejoicing 
that I'm offering to you in the way that I'm telling you Jesus loves you. This was a man, listen, who was paralyzed for 38 years. He sat by the pool waiting for someone to carry him in and it hadn't happened in all those years. Imagine the despair. Imagine the hope. Again, this was a brother that thought he'd get in the pool. Angel stirs the water. I can experience the healing I've been longing for. Imagine the despair day after day of nobody carrying him into the pool. Is it astonishing that after seeing this man suffer for so many years, that they wouldn't rejoice when his suffering came to an end? It's actually not because these are also the same people who never helped carry this man to the pool. Legalism eliminates empathy. And when there is no empathy, there's no occasion for rejoicing because your heart is shut off to the heart that Jesus has for others. You think that Jesus is more concerned about man-made rules than he is with rejoicing. This story in Matthew chapter 9 about Jesus being uh, just reclining and relaxing with a bunch of people in society that all, all, the, all, the, all the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people of, of, the, uh, of that particular time would have been very critical of. And it says this in Matthew 9, 10. It says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus wasn't sort of insinuating that the Pharisees weren't sinners. He was trying to put a mirror image before them and say, look at the state of your heart. These people are welcoming me in which means now I have the opportunity to show them mercy and you guys are pushing me back for the sake of your law, for the sake of your rules that God did give you once, but you now have twisted into something that he never intended. And in that, you can't even praise and rejoice with me that I'm sitting here, I'm reclining with sinners that are open now to the message of the gospel. The third thing Third conflict is legalism puts words in God's mouth. Old Testament law again stated that people were not to carry burdens on the Sabbath. Um, but this went way beyond what God actually said. We see the actions here of the paralytic when he got up and carried his mat. See, whenever, whenever we add something to what God says, we are simultaneously subtracting something he actually did say. Jesus gave the Sabbath to the Israelites for, for a good reason, but many of them had diluted the reason with rules that God had never instituted. Look what, look what Jesus said in this, uh, this story from Matthew 12. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, again, as a way to trap him, but they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, 
Which one of you has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. What's the key line here? It's, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What is the essence of the law? The essence of the law is to draw us nearer to the experience of God's goodness and his mercy and his grace for us while obeying the laws that actually allow us to live out the fruit of that. In Mark chapter 2, the Lord said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And speaking of himself, he said, so the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So, so Jesus is establishing who he is. He's the one at the end of the day, at the beginning of creation, who established Sabbath for the good of people, not to restrict them in such rigid ways that wouldn't allow them to flourish physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. So conflict, we see conflict happening here because of Jesus's mercy. But the work of Jesus, by contrast, creates clarity. The work of Jesus creates clarity. And this is the first thing we see, is that Jesus is clear on his heart for people that the world disregards. Look at the beginning of chapter five, when it says, there lay a multitude of invalids in three, and one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus gets close to people who the rest of us just sort of back away from a little bit. The rest of us are a little nervous about, right? Jesus gets close to people who are not considered very worthy in society, not able to contribute much, not looked upon as, as valuable. Jesus walks up to the sheep gate. He approaches the place where these people are lying, sees this group of people who are blind, people of disabilities, people who are paralyzed, and his heart immediately goes out to them. Christians don't always do this. The church doesn't always do this, and the church also does this. And I've seen you guys do this. We get close to the people that most people work hard to stay away from. But Jesus is like a magnet to those who are physically disadvantaged. So when, when Jesus looks at people, he immediately feels compassion for them. He sees them as sheep without shepherds. Jesus doesn't equate value uh, with what a person can contribute to society. He equates value to a person based on their status as image bearers of God. How different would things be if our lens changed 
into that, seeing brothers and sisters. And immediately before you know anything else about them, you see them as having this intrinsic value because they are image bearers. That means they were made in the image of God. Instead of looking down on someone due to their physical limitations, their socioeconomic status, or their lifestyle, or the, the life choices they've made, what if we first saw them as people who were made in the image of God and it's given them dignity and respect based on that alone? But Ronnie, there's always a but, right? Do you see what they do? Do you see how they talk? Do you see how they act? Do you see what they believe? Do you see what they've done to get themselves to this place? Yeah. And being kind to them, loving them, showing them compassion, dignity, and respect. I need you to hear me as clear as you've ever heard me right now. Is not affirming those things that they do that may even go against God's law. You are not affirming a person's sin the closer you get to them to love them in their sin. You know what you're doing? You are affirming to them that God loves them and desires to get close to them. And that when they experience a relationship with him due to repentance and forgiveness of their sins, then they, like you, will be able to obey God's laws out of a love for him because that is what brings satisfaction that they long for and they desire that they just can't see, just like you couldn't see it at one point until someone got close to you. and didn't affirm the things you did, but they affirmed God's love to you by getting close to you. Why is that so hard for us? Why is that so hard? It's hard. Interesting, we, we see this in verse 14. Jesus runs back to the paralytic. And he says, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, Jesus, again, this is a way that Jesus is moving into this man. He's healed this man. Then he disappeared. The man has a confrontation with, with the Jewish leaders. Jesus reconnects. Jesus gets close again, even after the man has been healed. And by the way, Jesus is not saying the, the, by this line He's not saying that this man was paralyzed due to his sin. In other words, he's, he's not saying, you better stop sinning or you're going to become paralyzed again, right? He is saying, listen, it's not enough to be healed of your paralysis. You need to respond to the mercy you receive from me with repentance and obedience. This was Jesus' ultimate heart for this man. And by the way, he had a heart for this man's physical well-being, and he had a heart for this man's spiritual well-being. But he presses in both times. He presses in when this man it has his, is, is at his lowest point physically. And then he presses in when this man could potentially be 
at a moment spiritually that he hadn't arrived at just because he was healed of his disease. Do, do we understand how clear Jesus is on his heart for people wherever they're at? The way he follows up with this man, that's how deeply he cared about the state of his heart. And the final thing is Jesus was clear because the work of Jesus creates clarity. He's, he was clear on having a quality with God. And this is the one that really was just getting him in so much trouble. He was clear on having equality with God. He calls God his father. He claims to be carrying on the work of God. And this brings us a little bit back to the conflict because it's one thing if Jesus was a lawbreaker in the eyes of the Jewish people and the Jewish teachers. It's another thing when he's considered a lawbreaker and then claims equal status to God, right? This is what those unbelieving Jews couldn't take. Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I'm working. In other words, Jesus is saying this healing that you just witnessed, that's a continuation of the work that God has always been doing and that I am continuing. Why? Because I'm the son of God. It was an outrageous claim that Jesus was making and backing up. Next week, we're going to look these Succeeding verses talk about his authority, the authority of Jesus as son of God. We're going to just unpack that. But this was an outrageous claim that, Je that Jesus was, was making. And it was received with disbelief by the Jewish people because, well, because there's a lot of things going on there, right? Their power was being threatened. Their control over the people who they kept in bondage with their legalities was being threatened. But this is the clarity that brings the conflict in our own lives. Because if Jesus is God, then it means that what he says is true. And if what he says is true, it means I have to listen. I have to believe. And I have to obey. It means that we're dealing with the creator of the universe who has given us his word and given us his life so that his words will give us the life that we need. Sinclair Ferguson says this, this great quote. He says, the lie, he's going back to Genesis. He says, the lie of the serpent that has passed into every human heart is this. If you obey God fully, you will always be miserable. So that's what's hard for us in our legalism because legalism is like dipping a toe into obedience toward God. It's taking a law and saying, I want to do that because that is what would be best for me, but I'm also going to hold you to a particular standard. And then I'm going to judge you whether you uphold the standard that God hasn't laid out there, but that I have laid out there, right? There's a real tension in our lives between those two things. Conflict in our own heart and our own soul and the clarity that Jesus provides. Our flesh is in conflict with our spirit. We, we are, in some ways, we're, we're all born legalists. And even if we tend to be more about license, we haven't even really addressed that. But even if we're the opposite of legalists, and we're like, man, everything, there's no law. Do whatever you want. Grace just frees us. You know, we can flip the other way, right? But even if we tend to be more like that, more about license, 
than legality. That in itself is its own legality, right? Because then we're now holding people to a particular standard that God hasn't laid out, right? It's saying this, I want my words, I want my words more than the words of Jesus to govern my life. It's saying that something in addition to or in subtraction of God's word is what's going to bring me joy and satisfaction and the life that I want. Tim Keller said, it's a shocking message that careful obedience to God's law may actually serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. Now we have to be so careful. That's the conflict that we face. So if that's true, then we need to recognize the way our hearts and our minds bend, what we easily bend to. Some of you guys are going to bend more to be law keepers and rule followers. Some of you are all going to just, just bend a little more license, right? Man, Ronnie, you talk a lot about God's grace. He forgives us. Who cares, right? Both things are ignoring something really important, which is that God gave us words to hear and words to obey and to take those words very, very seriously. We need to make sure that we bend back toward the heart and mind of Jesus when we locate the ways that we naturally bend. There's a voice in all of us. This is what's so interesting. There's a voice in all of us, just like Adam and Eve, that is whispering, did God really say? You're faced with that every single day. Did God really say that? It's a voice that is sort of speaking to us constantly out of our flesh. The question is, which voice do we obey? And we gotta remember, again, I've said this four times, five's a great number. Remember, being obedient to God's law, that's not legalistic, right? In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, don't think, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished the law and obedience to the law, that's what lets us know that we need the mercy and grace of God if our hearts are open to the fact that we can't keep the law perfectly. And to hold somebody under some standard that we ourselves can't even keep, that's the insidiousness of what can happen in a, in a church family. Because again, the rub is that Jesus is the only person in the world who ever obeyed God's law with perfection. So when we try to obey God's law, when we add our own laws to give us the perception, to give other people the perception that we're holy and acceptable to God, we're not obeying God at all. We're saying it's not grace I need, it's keeping the law. In the conflict of our legalism, we say this. If I do the right thing, be the right person, conform to this particular image, and judge others to my standard, I'll be accepted by Jesus as a righteous law keeper. But then, but then, the clarity of Jesus' words come in. 
just like they did here. And they just wreck us. They wreck us. They humble us. They astonish us. They deliver us from the paralysis of our souls. Jesus replaces our lens of legalism. And instead he puts on the merciful one that he looks through. And in that moment, if we receive it, a burden is lifted. Our eyes are open and we experience the grace that we have been shielding ourselves from and withholding from everybody else. So for us to get clarity, we need to be like this paralyzed man when Jesus asked him in verse six, do you want to be healed? What's so interesting is that the man's response was, remember last week when we talked about the official that came to Jesus saying, will you just come back to my house and heal my son? Well, his, his response is kind of similar, right? It was, yes, I want to be healed, but here's what I need you to do, Jesus, to make everything better. Remember last week, the, uh, the official said, I need you to perform, come home, perform some kind of a ceremony for my son, whatever it is you do. Jesus said, nah, I'm busy, go, he's healed. Let's paraphrase. This paralyzed man says, I need someone to bring me to the pool. Jesus says, you only need to get up. Jesus says, you only need to believe. Believe me. Be healed by me. Obey my commands. Live the life of mercy that my death and resurrection is going to make possible for all eternity. Legalism is a paralysis of the soul. Grace and mercy, will, that, will those retune our hearts, right? Will we ask Jesus to retune our hearts today to his mercy and grace? so that the legalism that creates so much division in our churches can be destroyed? How else will we be able to love our neighbor the way Jesus loved this paralyzed man? We can't. We can't do it until we open our eyes to the paralysis of our souls and pray for God to end the conflict so that we can live out the clarity of his mercy. The clarity of his mercy, so that we can be a church who takes that first step towards offering mercy as an act of obedience to the law of God. When we take communion, we, we eat a piece of bread, we drink from a cup, we are celebrating the mercy of God through Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection. In that moment, we are saying, I can't keep the law, Jesus. You had to keep it for me. In other words, all the stuff that, that we say we need to do to be good people, only Jesus did that. We can't do that. We don't have it in us. The Bible says if we've broken one law, it's as if we've broken all of the laws. Different consequences, 
right? For different, for different law breakings, but it's the same heart that pushes away from obedience to Christ. Jesus comes and he lives that perfect law-abiding life so that his record of being a perfect law keeper gets added to our record if we just trust him for that. That's salvation. That's how simple it is. If that's not you, if you haven't received that salvation, that's what you're saying. You're saying, I can't, I can't do all the good things. And the few that I've done, well, it doesn't matter. They're offset by all the bad, the other ones I haven't. It's a big mess. Well, you're, you're, it is. You're right. It is a big mess. You're a big mess. Which is why we need the clarity of Jesus dying on the cross so that his law keeping would be applied to us. So that when God looks down, the clarity now in our conflict of being people who can't keep the law is that he sees Jesus' law, perfect law keeping applied to us. That's the grace. That's the love. That's what it means to have union with Christ. That's what it means to be accepted by God. That's what it means to have a future where you can look forward to someday passing from this life into eternity with Christ forever. Where that fear that you have when you lay your head down on the pillow and you're unsure dissipates for you. That's what we're saying when we take of the bread and the cup. Therefore, if, you, if you're not somebody who's done that, we'd say, don't do that yet. Don't come up and take the bread and the cup. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything yet for you. So this is a moment to examine yourself and where you're at. And we're, and we're so happy you're here to do that, right? So this isn't us pushing away. This is us saying, come on in. Because we're going to do this again in two weeks, and we want you walking up that aisle to take of the bread and the cup. I'm going to pray. Ushers are going to come forward. we got stations here and in the back. I'm going to pray. Give us a minute to do some examination. Because we would love for you to have clarity with what Jesus has provided you with his mercy that he extends because of his work on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for such a great illustration of Jesus coming to a paralyzed man, showing him mercy, giving us clarity with who he is as God, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for the clarity we have, the example we have of a person who got closer, who gets closer to us and heals us ultimately of the paralysis of our souls. Lord, we thank you for this grace. I pray for anybody that hasn't received that yet from you, Lord, that they would examine their life, that they would see that even if they are considered to be the greatest law keepers in the world, they have fallen short. And that to absolve us of the guilt that we have for not keeping the law perfectly, we need the broken body and shed blood of Jesus on the cross so that we can find and experience forgiveness of sins so we don't have to live a life of condemnation so that the conflict 
gives way to clarity, which is mercy and grace. So Lord, would you, would you help somebody who's in that place and maybe struggling and wrestling and doesn't even know how to approach you? Would you just open up their heart to speak to you right now? Confess their sin? Be honest with you about where they're at and what they want? Lord, would you, would you open up something? Would you shine a light in their souls right now, Lord? Would you do that? And Lord, for the rest of us who are struggling in many ways because our struggles don't end when we come to you. But Lord, by this partaking of the bread and the cup, the, the symbols of your death and resurrection, let it give us hope and strength again. Let it remind us of the beauty of your mercy towards us. Lord, let us, let us take this opportunity right now to be able to give those things to you that have been hard for us, that have been filling us with guilt and condemnation. Lord, give us the, the heart to confess now those things to you. Give us also, Lord, the, the heart to receive your forgiveness and to receive the strength and the nourishment that comes from your broken body and shed blood. Let this be a moment, Lord, where, where the snow that's falling from the sky right now, Lord, let that be a metaphor for the work that you're gonna do in our hearts this morning. You're gonna make us clean and white as snow. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.